Welcome, Path Folk, to another fabulous after party. I will be your host this evening, morning, afternoon, whenever you're choosing to listen to this. I am Rachel Sandage, and let's get started. Woohoo! So this is going to be for episodes 91, 92, and 93. What a twist. We're not there yet. A twist. A twist. All right. So 91, uh, we got to the the fancy bathhouse. And... um, Not the first time you've been there, actually. What? Well, we've been been on the upstairs. We did not realize that there was a secret hidden chamber beneath it. It was hidden below us all this time. What's with hidden chambers under bathrooms and bathhouses? Yeah, I was going to say Harry Potter. It's true. true. Unfortunately, there wasn't a basilisk. Yeah, yeah. you don't need anything else to turn us to stone. <laughs> you, I was going to say, you already got the bad thing. No. We've already got the one thing that turns us to stone in this book. We don't need two. We it's too obvious of a reference. But uh, we got to fight through some crazy traps, got to meet some clockwork mm-hmm. contraptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, then not really meet. Just we saw see. them. We saw them. Kind of the way that you don't meet wax presidents, you just see them. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> it would have been alive if it had been cranked up. Yeah, your guys are literally holding his life in your hands. Yeah, we are. Hey. He's basically TikTok from The Wizard of Oz. Um, yeah. So then we ended with the, the creepy fight with the Aeons. Yeah, they were weird. Uh, those were some strange creatures. Uh, so I never expect anything like that. So like that's such a left field kind of thing to get popped in there. I never get to run Aeons. I know what I know that they they always give you like some kind of justification for why that's there, and we'll never hear about it as players. Why are those things there? The Nethians summoned them and told them to guard the library. You think it's just just that simple? Yeah. But why Aeons? Because they're the ultimate balance. And Nethus is all about balance. Yeah, I, you know, I guess. <laughs> just seems like you could also summon like all, any lawful thing. All it provides me pertaining towards them is that two Thelitos Aeons inhabit this room. These impartial guardians follow their own unfathomable code, but strive to uphold the balance of fate by destroying those who learn the knowledge stored within the vault. Mm. Uh, they neither voice their reasons nor explain them, simply broadcasting mental flashes of burning books and scrolls before attacking. Weird. So... They do what they want. So, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sound like they're necessarily, like, controlled. Like, you know, when we had the air elemental. Or I, the I think you can soccer. really just kind of hand wave it. It's kind of the way that if, uh, for anyone who's ever run Strange Aeons, is you can hand wave a lot of that by saying unfathomable. Yeah. Like, why are they yeah. doing these things? It's beyond human comprehension. Yeah. They just are. Cthulhu does what Cthulhu does. He doesn't owe you an explanation. Like cats. Yeah. Yeah. Cthulhu like is actually a cat. Giant tentacle cat. <laughs> Cthulhu. <laughs> well, from there, we moseyed on to episode 92, where we got to finish exploring, and we found those, like, big hulking soldier things. Clockwork, clockwork yeah. soldiers. Yeah, and we decided not to with them. And we yeah. took their key. <laughs> we, did, we did take their key. We were like, uh, no, so, TikTok, you shall not awake. So uh, we had the theory that I think, Rick, you'd almost postulated that the alarm spell that we disabled on our way in would have triggered them. Was that actually true? Yeah, Citra figured that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not yeah. the only thing that could trigger them. I'm sure going up to them and being like, hey. give me that halberd, son. Yeah, if you, <laughs> you popped it like hey, a bear, buddy. I'm sure it'd wake up. Yeah. I was going to say, I like that somebody just basically hit the snooze button on them. Nah. Yeah. They're, they're just in standby mode. It's, it's like when you put your PlayStation to sleep. Yeah. yeah. It remembers. Yeah. It remembers. I, uh, I actually really like the, we can't, like, literally what that says is nobody can be trusted to guard this. Not even really necessarily the Aeons. So, yeah. like, they had to go to the clockwork, you know, automaton route, like golems, to protect it because it is so secret that literally like nobody can know about it. Well, and didn't they find a bunch of clockwork stuff? Like that's not something they made so much as they found a bunch of ancient clockwork stuff. I, is that right? The me- mechanics of making clockworks is known, but yeah. I think it's rare. I mean, you the, just have to have a feat. In the setting, clockwork devices were originally invented by the Aslanti. Uh, and the Aslanti use them extensively. For anyone who's played through any of the, the Rise of the Rune Lords, Shattered Star, Return of the Rune Lords, I imagine I haven't actually run through that one. There's a lot of clockwork automatons involved in that because it was something that they did. And you can assume at some point, since Osirian kind of rose up about a thousand years after the fall of Aslant, you can assume that the Osirians adapted a lot of it. But it actually, it makes a ton of sense for the Osirian people. 
because engineering and architecture and all of that is a huge thing. They were so much more advanced in architecture than almost anyone else in the world. The idea that the clockwork automatons, strangely, it felt a little odd for the Nethians. It did, yeah. Yeah, because they're not like they're not pure magic. Thing, yeah. You know? yeah, I would I would imagine Nethians favoring golems over clockwork because clockworks technically don't have magic. They do. They're they, they are they? they're powered by magic, oh, okay. but they their movement and everything else is engineered by mechanics. Uh, okay, as opposed to Actually, what no, an Ethian true. would that's do, where right. it's just like here's a block of wood. Now I made it move. Oh yeah, that's right. Because yeah. there's a, a clockwork mage, I think, that you can actually slot in <clears throat> wands, and it uses the wands to cast spells. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff there. But it seems like the Nethians have a an appreciation for clockworks. Yep, these ones anyway. I mean, it's one of those things that's like, you know, it is a knowledge. Like, having yeah. a clockwork allows you to study it, potentially learn its secrets. They wouldn't just destroy one. Yeah. They don't have to. No. Unfortunately, our clockwork soldiers were not guarding Kelru. Uh, he was nowhere to be found. We yep. did decide we we're probably going to come back here and do some research. Yeah, because there was definitely. the handwriting that matched, uh, what's his name? Uh, our boy. Kennedy. 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 I was about to say just a second. It's like, no, that's uh, not right. I, Every single time I hear Kennedy, though, I always want to say Kanicki. <laughs> I don't know why. There's your what, when did that movie come out. I don't even know. I'm not even that big of a fan of Grease, but I always think the the phrase he would say he's like a hickey from Kanicki is better than a Hallmark card. <laughs> and every time I hear Kanetti, I'm like. <laughs> but Kanetti's a sassy, fabulous man. I don't well, Kanicki like was him. actually pretty fabulous. I liked him better than Danny in the movie. Anyway, well, okay. he was less of an a hole. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are dealing with a lot of people with similar like you have a lot of Kel- Kelru Kabek. Kennedy, just a sec. Just a sec with a C, though. But. Yeah. yeah. Right. We, we will definitely have to come back here and do some research. We don't have time. We did not have time for that at the time. Yeah, because we got to save Kelru. Yeah, we did decide to use the divination spell, and so we gathered some info and figured out where we needed to go. Uh, we divided we and conquered. We met up with all of our Kobeck homies. appeared. Yes. Yeah, Kobeck appeared. Yeah. What Wild Kobeck appeared. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and it wouldn't be till 93 that we figured out why Kobeck appeared. And the, let the backstabbing begin. That's true. So uh, we did get a heck of a twist in episode 93 oh, where we yeah, showed up. Twist. And uh, Citra was very angry because We she, did stupid stuff. We just walked into the corner. I know. I was like, we have never, ever not checked the building first. And Citra was like about to say something, but then everybody walked in. So she was like, I Check guess we're corners. going. Okay, but let me tell you. Check your corners. The f- end of the first season of Psych has this weird scene with candles and stairs. Aware. And that of some have of some sort of weird mental block about stairs and candles. I don't know why. Because of that episode, all I could think was like, nope, not going up those stairs. It's because <laughs> you used to have that playing when you were sleeping. And so it seeped into your subconscious. Ah. Uh, God, yes. you, that freaking show scared the shit out of me Osmosis. every freaking week. Because you'd yes. have it playing, and then all of a sudden the psych theme would go on as I'm walking out of the house, and I'm like, what the F? I know. You know that I'm not telling the truth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's one of those things also where, like, the way that the that the building is constructed, when you go in, you can immediately see into the courtyard. And we yeah. saw Kel- Kelru, And right? so we saw Kelru, and we're we like... We saw a statue. We or saw a saw, statue. Yeah, I guess we saw a statue. We're like, that's weird, and we wanted to see what that was, and yeah. then, of course... we threw all caution to the wind and yeah. decided, we'll just go in and let all of our backs be exposed to an ambush. I don't know. The divination was like, you'll go to the courtyard and we're like, okay. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things we kind of like, we kind of fell into it because of the divination. Yeah. And also there's that... We were that, getting attacked either way, so... Well, one, yeah, we're getting but, attacked either way, but I personally did not think the silver chain was involved in it. I thought like, they were all gone. I guess I thought we dealt with them in Wati. We dealt with all the ones in Wati. Yeah, all the ones in Wati. <laughs> I know, we knew, we knew that there was another... We knew they originally had another branch in Tefu. That's true, but I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that they had just, like, all my... I thought that Merit Hesef was, like, the leader of them, not a mid-level leader, you know? And she so then you dealt with all of them. Well, no, the implication that I tried to get across, maybe it didn't completely get across, is that Kabek, Kabek whom you're dealing with now, is the leader of the Silver Chain. You fought previously. The dude that we got uh, Natron's fang from, I don't remember his name. Oh yeah. And he was he working was with uh, Merit Hetef. Yeah, Ekram Effect. That's uh, it. Okay. And when you, you fought Ekram, who was working more directly with Merit Hetef, but the difference is, is that Kabek was the leader of the Silver Chain who then joined the cult. But from what you can understand, Merit Hetef was a cultist. A cultist who then became a liaison to the Silver Chain. 
So, and she had some silver chain guys with her yeah. and Wati. Who were also cultists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did we, me or Onuris, ever actually meet Kavak before, or was he totally No, I met I met Kavak before, Rick. But you couldn't remember yeah. his yeah. name. It's one of those, I, he was a dude I saw in the library. He was and a dude you saw in the few, library. And talked with a few times. He may or may not have been Kavak. Yeah. As far as his name was concerned. concerned. He looked familiar to you because Kabek has his Kabek or whoever he is the leader of the silver chain has his fingers in various places but no he never interacted with Onurus or Citra directly but I made the role high enough to remember who to go I, this guy's face looks familiar. familiar I recognize this guy he's That's the true. actor that plays Luke Cage we should have <laughs> we should have been suspicious because Onurus didn't tell us anything about himself for 50 episodes there's no way he tells some random guy he doesn't remember the name of Anything about what he was looking into, you know? Kavak didn't know what I was looking into. I thought yeah, he, he did. did. He, 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 implied, did. he implied that you, he knew what you were looking into previously because he said that you were researching something and that he was researching his own ancestry, which kind of corresponded to yours. Kavak knew that because Kavak has spies through the library. Yep. And on yours, while he was doing his own research and everything, I mean, was there's also records of the books on. I pulled. It yeah, wasn't a yeah. stretch for him yeah, to know He looked at on search history. <laughs> yeah, like, that wouldn't have seemed suspicious to on I know, well, it should have been suspicious to all of us because Onuris is super close-lipped about his stuff. But none of us, we were just like, yeah, that makes sense. We were all just so duped. It's also duped. it's also funny because this is like one of the biggest twists I think we've ever had because I've been hearing about it all week as we just like cannot <laughs> stop talking about what a great twist this was. And it's really interesting because it also kind of played off of our own metagamey kind of stuff. Because yeah, I know, like, Heather, you specifically it. said, well, they'll give us somebody to help with the research in case we're not good at it. And, and we're I'm, like, yeah, okay. And we're all like, yeah, that makes perfect that, that sense. That makes perfect logical yeah. sense. You've and been then, conditioned ah, to think that. We just, Except we, just, we didn't need no, it. <laughs> we just never thought that that was going to be the person that betrayed us. So it was just Which, such a great twist because of that. See, that, that's the problem, though, is because at least when Rick plays in our games, if his character likes anybody, we automatically know they're evil. Everybody has their thing. You know? or, or they're going to die. <laughs> uh, here's the other thing. Rick said that he added Kelru. Oh, yeah. Right? So yeah. is there, if Kelru dies uh, mm-hmm. in book two or whatever, book one, is there just some other random nothing that helps us? Or was that something you added in to like add drama? I more, I almost added it in more as a reward. Oh. Um, because we didn't stab us. Well, it's kind of one of those things where I'm going to make a bit of a reference here to one of my favorite game series, period. Uh, Mass Effect. Oh. <laughs> that there are t- tons of tiny things that you do in Mass Effect 1 that have just like almost throwaway ramifications in Mass Effect 2. The one that sticks out in my mind in Mass Effect 1 is you, you can talk to this family who's having their baby may or may not have a uh, genetic, a genetic disorder, yeah. and you can convince them one way or the other to help the child. Hmm. Or not, whether or not that it's worth the risk of possibly doing something that's irreparable to the child to maybe remove this other possibility. It only it comes up there, and then if you're playing in Mass Effect 3 and you're walking by, you can find the two of them discussing the child and the child's health, you know, with regards to what you had suggested to them in Mass Effect 1. Cool. And it's just in the background. And I loved that level of immersion. And it was the same thing here where if you'd gone, if you had killed Kelru and you'd gone to here, there would have been an Ethian priest to let you in. Mm. And that's it. But it was like you showed mercy there to your own detriment to a degree. You had to fight a certain way to like not kill Kelru to make mm-hmm. things more difficult to you. And I'm gonna reward you guys for taking those steps because that is that's good role playing, that's good investment. And then it makes logical sense for it to for Kelru to want to pay it forward later. So it's yeah. rewarding you for taking the hard road early by giving you an additional resource later. Even if if we never brought this up, if we weren't doing an after party, you may have very well assumed that it was part of the story. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. If you hadn't mentioned in a previous adventure or after party that you had made a sticky note and you said, oh, include him later, then I don't think we would have questioned it. I think we would have thought it was part of the story. Yeah, it's true. Well, the other thing is if there's like this weird thing with the Church of Nethys, um, Mm -hmm. and so because Kelru was the one that was telling us, you know, be careful, they're after you. Well, technically that was his ass. We were like, okay, well, he could be like a double agent in the church. Like, it could yeah. still be the church. Like, it made it, like, logical for us to just suspend disbelief that the church, you know, was also part of this cult. There's still something screwy going on with the church, though. Well, there's something the- weird, but I don't think, well, well if Kavak can be believed, which who knows. It makes sense that Hakatep wouldn't work with the church that had, like, destroyed him. I still think that the current church is the Order of the Blue Feather. That'd He's be cool. Kavak said that. 
Yeah. Kavak called the Hatia the leader of the order. Yep. Oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. no, she, that's what he said. So that's the assumption. That, but my theory is that the money that's disappearing and the people that are disappearing are actually being sent to try to track down, infiltrate, eliminate or, the silver chain. Or they're rooting out the silver chain members and those are the ones disappearing. Oh. Also, that's possible too. But so, that would require money and funds. Yeah, yeah, but it's also can't be on the public record books because yeah. she cannot actually say whenever the tax man comes around, yeah, I spent X number of gold on fighting this secret order that nobody's supposed to know exists and is a great shame to the church, you know? Yeah. So that's my current theory. So um, cool. We'll see I, how it pans out. I very much enjoyed this section. And later on, we can get into a little bit more detail. Not at the moment, because uh, everything hasn't resolved yet. But I did. I took a lot of steps to expand this portion of the story because I'm a big fan of classic like spy versus spy okay. intrigue kind of things born style movies and all the rest of that like layers of intrigue and how deep does this go and all the rest of that and I enjoyed the, the level of immersion all of you brought to it because everyone got into it was okay so Kelru's working for the Hatcha so Kelru's the bad guy it's like but Kelru's helping us so maybe Kelru's a double agent yeah. and is more interested in us than the Hatcha but wait Kelru's originally from Sothis, so maybe he's part of the Sothian Nethians infiltrating the Southern Nethians and is just kind of helping us because he owes us one. I think at some point it was also, I, I can't remember who mentioned it, it wasn't on air, but someone mentioned it's like, well, we don't even know if Kelru isn't even necessarily working with Mamanafra because Kelru's a loyal, a loyal member of the Osa, of Osirian and is more interested in aiding the Pharaoh against this potential. It's, no one knew what Kelru's. We still don't know what Kelru's doing. You know, but what we know about him is that he was willing to risk his life to see an ancient Nethys temple, right? Like, that's the whole deal with book one. Like, they knew that they were breaking the law, that if they got caught, they'd be put to death or whatever. And he did it anyway because he wanted that knowledge. Knowledge, Yeah. Yeah. And so we know, or at least I think I know, that Kelru is a loyal Nethys priest. I know that that's a thing that he is. But willing to break the rules. Well, yeah. Rules are, I mean, Nethys is neutral. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Probably not a lawful neutral Nethys priest. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) No, it it is one of those things also that like, you know, it's the same thing where like we had the, the moment when we're getting sabotaged in the race. And we're going back and forth about like, okay, is it the church? Is it somebody wanting to blame it on the church? Is somebody like, blaming it on the church? Why else would you wear black and white robes? Why else would you not use magical means to murder us? Hollis feels so bad and needs to go and apologize <laughs> to the Hachia for accusing her of murdering her. I'm sorry. Heat I know the moment. You didn't murder it's us. Yeah. But it, it is one of those things we definitely got into it because, like, again, that's the back and yeah. forth. I don't think we've ever talked about well, this. Well, it didn't something. help that Azaz was playing the pronoun game. They all uh, did. They all played the pronoun game. That's pronoun intentional, though. Oh, well, so good. Part of what Azaz brought up is that Keller cannot let him in. Nethys is a god of Secrets. secrecy. And Kelru is restricted by his own faith in certain respects, where it's much as Onurus may not necessarily agree with the Pharaoh. However, the Pharaoh is a living horse. So Onurus could not take violent action. Yeah, which the is Pharaoh. why the whole idea that Onurus wants to kill the Pharaoh is freaking ridiculous but, to him. I'm, I'm just saying that. Yeah. And so Kelru didn't want to involve Azaz because it's that classic thing of, you know, when you're in the deep, you know, yeah. say it's like, it's like I need to give Azaz enough information for him to do what I need to, but not enough information for him to knows. become a threat and then be like dragged into this himself, which he dragged himself into it. But Kelru played everything almost too close to his own vest whenever yeah. you know he disappeared ah, I love him um, it's also I enjoyed the whole the whole intrigue side of it I'm I'm still interested in seeing how it all finally ends and plays out well but we have I, to figure out what the Hachi is up to because we promised Mama and Offer we would true I think it's really funny that we were so eked out about or at least I was about Kabek keeping the Medusa charmed eternally like that was so gross but yeah. we were like, well, he's just a good guy. Like, he's just, he's not going to use that when he's going to murder you later. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things that's also like, you know, the Sphinx thing is a good example of like, we knew about the Sphinx. It was clearly a side quest. You Alto know, said we should know, go get it. Go off. And then we didn't. And now it's like, I feel like we're in like uber hard mode. Yeah. Hey, yeah, we, we, we couldn't have killed that Medusa though. With Kavak no, saying, no, no. "I'm not going to help you do it," and me, it just being me and Citra, there was no other way out. Yeah, of that situation. no, no, no. But we should have been more suspicious of Kavak, but we just weren't. It was weird. Uh, but well, we stopped associating with him after that. That is true. 
But if we had gone to that tower after the night where we heard the Sphinx and stuff, would we have found something? Because I think, I mean, on her it searched, but I don't know. You, well, first off, and one of those traditionally kind of reoccurring ironies, if you'd had a member of your party that was really good at survival or tracking, um, you could have potentially found some more information there. I have good Um, survival. In addition to that, there there would have been clues there that would have also pointed towards the Church of Nethys. Huh. Oh, because uh, Kelru had yes. purchased those bolts. Kelru also, unlike on Eurus, Kelru prays at night. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. he had his materials and everything there for his little, like, Nethian shrine and everything to do his prayers while he's also watching over all of you. God, and so he oh. he scared the thing off yeah. so it wouldn't attack. Ah, Kelru! Yeah, but it's Why also he, he should have just let it attack us, and it would have been dead, and we wouldn't have to deal. He should have just now. talked to us. Well, the thing is, it could have feasibly. I mean, it would have wait. It would have been fresh, and you guys would have potentially been asleep. But. Wait. Hmm? At the very beginning, when Hollis met Kelru, he gave me some sort of secret sign that I missed because I rolled a one. Was that relevant? Yes. Oh. What was it? It was more to see for Keller to determine what where you were, what side of all of this that you're on. Oh. What I think is the most beautiful, this is a story that almost could only be told with the Church of Nethys, because it is two different factions of the Church of Nethys warring against each other, more or less, or in competition with each other. However, Nethys goes, okay, I'll grant both of you spells and we'll figure <laughs> out who, you know, who comes out on top, because I'm not going to hold back my aid from one side or the other. And in all of these cases, Neth is just like, no, you're still pursuing magic. We're good. Oh. It's like, but one side's trying to kill the other. No, no, you're fine. That's fine. <laughs> no troll. His destruction hands on one side, his creation hands on the other, and it's basically like a kid with two action figures just bashing them together uh. until one of them breaks. So did I pass by failing? Not, eh. I would say that he, at that point, knew that you were a neutral party. Okay. But his immediate concern was not to delve too far into this, but whether or not the doorkeepers had been infiltrated. Ah. Ah. Because we did just have a new member join us. There's so many layers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, Kabek kind of came in and and did his thing. Oh, Kabek. Although I will say, in Kabek's defense, and he brought this up a couple of times, he multiple times said that this is not how he wanted this to resolve, that he wanted to work with you, that he was sad that this was coming down to violence. He wants us to jump on Hakatev's bandwagon, and on yours is like, uh, no. He's a legitimate believer that this is the best course of action, and so he tried to convince you. Yeah, the Pharaoh sucks, but not that much. And in the end... It was completely true that he did not want to, he didn't want to do violence against that Medusa. And to be perfectly honest, he, he's not relishing in doing violence against all of you. Oh, because a silver chain isn't violent like that. No, no they're not. They're not a violent gang. Yeah, but Citra couldn't, Citra couldn't because she saw what Hakatep did in Wati and she, oh, no. she's like, no. I, yeah, I no. knew for certain none of you were going to take it. Yeah. However, in his mind... It's the lesser of two evils. It's he like thinks this, that Ruby Prince is such a bad pharaoh that Hoktep's the only other choice. This is this is the only way to restore Osirian. He, again, it's that classic thing that any good villain thinks that they're the hero. Yep. yep. Is his lineage actually linked to the Dejerids? Who knows? That I can't answer. And it may have some very interesting... Uh, you may find out more about it in the future. Yeah, because okay. Onuris isn't really happy about stabbing one of his, the last living yeah. members of that line. It's true. So, I mean, but again, that's, we can't have Hakatep running around. I, I will say the power of his sorcery comes from his, his prestigious lineage. bloodline. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he's still the same type of he's, sorcery. He's, uh... Noble blood or whatever? Uh, Imperial, I think. Imperial. Imperial, Imperial it's, it's complicated. Um, oh. Well, he's an aromancer. Yeah. Um, But a a common thing with the pharaohs is the fact that the pharaohs are, whenever the pharaohs, it's part of the reason that Osirian had a lot of trouble when there wasn't a pharaoh, is that the pharaohs have an ancient agreement with the elementals of sand and wind that live in the desert to control these magical elemental storms that go through Osirian, these Mm. dust storms. And so because of that, all of the pharaoh's lineage have this connection to elemental fire and air. Makes Um, sense. And that's where it kind of draws power on. Yeah, because like the Ruby Prince has a air elemental that's like in his core. Fire elemental. It's a fire, fire elemental. elemental, yeah. Permanently invisible. That follows him around everywhere. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Do it right. such a... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so big uh, big twist, big ah, reveal there. Such a good twist. Yeah, that was a I really think, uh, good one. I think all the all the pieces kind of fell into place whenever that was there, that you had a lot of disparate pieces where it's just like, why do they keep... It's like, why does this, this Sphinx kind of keep coming up? Why is this Sphinx interested in us? What's going on with the Medusa? Hey, Kavik, is that Medusa still okay? It's interesting enough. I will give you this as a fun side note. You could have potentially killed all six of these cultists before you even got here. 
What? Two of them were on the chariot that tried to run you off of the race during the chariot. So if you'd actually yeah. chosen to just stop and duke it out with them. The other two were up on the roof. So if Solace had just decided to mention Dora up on top of the roof <laughs> and duke it out with the archers there. And then I believe I specifically mentioned that when Onuris and Citra succeeded so well and skipped a number of spaces that they skipped the third assassination attempt. Which had two more cultists. Which were two. Those, those were all six of the cultists that you're facing here. Oh. Well, yeah, we that would have been weird, though. We could have had just a standoff with Kabek. <laughs> Potentially if you had managed to destroy all of his other resources beforehand. Well, or if we were down in there, we'd somehow made some kind of, you know, sense motive check or something to know that he's lying, although I doubt that's bluff nuts. We need a million yeah. sense motive checks. I mean, on yours, would have on yours with his high enough wisdom score, if I had max ranks in sense motive, I may have had a chance, but I don't have max ranks in sense motive, so... Yeah. Well, and stopping to attack any of the cultists more or less takes you out of the race. Yeah, exactly. True. You lose so much time that you cannot keep going in the race. Right. Because you would have to, you would have to be able to defeat those cultists in one round to be able to actually keep up with the race. Yeah, which, I mean, good luck with um, that. So, yeah, you could have potentially dealt with a lot of these problems before now, but, of course, every one of them looked to be a disparate, different threat until you got to the point where you realized that all of them were... Th I mean, Kabek was the missing piece. And it doesn't yeah. help that we keep being on a time crunch. You have three days to do this library. Oh, yeah. You have three days to do this library, you know? So, interestingly enough about that, yes, during the library phases, we have three days to do it. In between, though, we could have jumped out, said, let's go track down that Sphinx, see what's up with that. You know, hey, let's do the investigation. Like, we yeah. could have we could have pursued the side quest, and I think the problem was is that we focused too heavily on, we have a time crunch, we've got to get this done, we got to get this done. The, well, we thought pursuing all of this was going to lead us to all those problems anyway. It did. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> all, all, it, all, all at once. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it did, but it was it was all at once, and now I'm very concerned for Every, our, every for our choice health. that the party made was perfectly logical. Oh, yeah. I don't feel like any of us did anything out of character. No, there you was, didn't. No, 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 we didn't. No, Citra did something out of character. Yeah. Citra would have cleared this dang building first. Citra should open her dang mouth. <laughs> Citra keeps getting overruled. Citra didn't say anything. You didn't say anything. <sighs> all right, but let's talk about the thing that I've talked about all week because it's been killing me. Okay. That dimension door. Mm -hmm. Did I do the right thing? I mean, I think so. Well, I don't think so, three, which is why I didn't three, go. Yeah, three out of four uh, party members agree that that was the right thing to do. But I have another dimension here, door. Here's, okay, so here's my thought. So, Jess, say what your thought process was, and then Heather, say what your thought process was, because obviously we didn't really talk about it ooh, during the episode. Ooh, we should close our ears and not hear each other's at first, or no? Is that bad? That's that's weird. Just, okay, fine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Earmuffs, everyone. Uh, you should take know. off your headphones, then you can't hear. I oh. guess. Well, no, that's no, not no, no, that's not here. remotely true. We're all in the same way. Um, I was Skype. okay. So we walked into this ambush, and Rick put down so many bases that he didn't. He ran out of red bases. <laughs> and that's how you know it's serious. Kavik was flying in the air, and there was a Medusa somewhere. And so I was just thinking that we could dimension door somewhere randomly. I was hoping to go to that barn thing, but apparently it's caved in. But we just reset their ambush. Yeah, we're still in the same house. We're still going to have the fight, but at least they won't all know exactly where we are to, like, hammer us with sound bursts or turn invisible and sneak attack all of us. Or what, they, at least they'll have to find us, right? So it, in my head, it gave us a little more equal footing. It gave us a round to maybe, like, cast haste or get out the eye liner or stuff. Yeah. And I picked the second floor... Because I was fairly sure that the Medusa was on the second floor, and if we could just neutralize her, the rest of it seems easier. I mean, Kovac's scary, and the Sphinx is big, but... Well, this is before the Sphinx, actually. Yeah, it's before mind, the yeah. Sphinx. We did not know about the Sphinx. The Medusa prevents us from looking, so we're, we're blind fighting, or we're averting our gaze and taking mischances, so no sneak attack. And so I figured if we could find the Medusa, probably on the second floor, and if we could reset their trap, we might not all die. That was my thinking. We're in this entryway. We know the outside's there. We know the cultists are all around there, and that's the courtyard where Kavik is. The audience does this, not understand I know. where they're We're in there. a room that has two doors that go around the side of the house, and the entryway is behind us, and the stairs are in that room. We are in a room that we know every single direction things could come from. If we form a defensive line and stay down there, nothing can surprise us. 
But there's so many openings. Yeah. Doesn't matter because Citra can sneak attack. That that's a five. All of those doors are five foot entries. One thing can come through at a time. Well, yeah, okay. So but actually, still four entrances though, and not everybody's front line. Yeah. So the issue is, is that there are four entrances to the room, which means at maximum four people. Technically can come five. Through. You got stairs. Well, okay. So five. If you count the stairs. I still think it's more secure than being in a place where we don't know where we would have wound up. We don't know who else could be upstairs. At least on this floor, we knew where the pawns were. No, but we didn't really because we don't know if that's all of them. Yeah, which I'm saying. Another thing, we go upstairs and there's seven more cultists up there. Well, I mean, we're going to uh, fight yeah. them all at I some just, point. I just, I felt, I feel more secure downstairs where I can see where everything's coming from and I know the layout because if we had had Hollis in the back and the rest of us surround her, we have the wizard protected and all the entrances guarded. That's too many entrances, though. There's only three of us that could defend her. Like, it, it yeah, but if open. we're around her and things are coming in, it's. I still think it's more defensible than going upstairs. I don't... Mm-mm. I like being able yeah, to see where everything's coming from. <laughs> I am scared about being split. Yeah. That is scary. Now we're split, though. <laughs> well, we actually ended up... So uh, we ended up not being as split as you might think. Like, I thought at first we were going to be, like, completely separated by, like, a round or two of movement. Thunderous is like only a double move away from... Yeah, yeah. so it's a double move away. So it's actually I just, I, not that far away. I but feel more secure knowing where the things could be coming from and then the unknown. So here's the here's the bigger issue, and i kind of been thinking about this, is this is actually for us as players for the first time we've ever done this where one person has been like, I'm not going to escape with the rest. And there's that kind of thing of like, don't split the party. Imagine if we'd gone further out, if we'd been like in the barn or whatever, it's kind of hanging on Uris out to dry. But also, Onuris could have just gone with the rest of the team because that was, you know, we went in an order where, Heather, you had the chance to say. So we teleport into an unknown room and the Medusa's right there and all three of you have to make saves immediately. That was a risk. That was a a risk. And that's another reason I didn't want to go because who the hell knows what else is in this house. At least downstairs, we know what's coming. I think my only scared part of it, and this is more of a Citra thing, is... You're now by yourself with the mask. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. The issue now is Kabek can get or, one or piece of it. Yeah, no. but the other one no, goes with it. It's always, got magic. They always travel together. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the separated. issue. If he attacks, right, let's say all the cultists attack, he attacks, they all hit you at once. You're the only target that's visible to them, so they will all attack you. If, let's say that they just wail you down to nothing, grab the uh, the headdress, teleport away. We now don't have the pieces. They have two, and then they can find the third piece, and we're in real trouble. But I think the thing that saves it is even, like, they can't just grab on Eurus and teleport because he could make the will save to not be teleported. So If he's awake. Well, and we'll have a round to get down there yeah. if we need to. And we're kind of loud, so I'm sure that on Eurus can figure out where we are in the house if he wants to come yeah. hang out with us. But there's, a, there's so many unknowns. And then that dang Sphinx. Yeah, yeah that like, was hey, buddy. very unexpected. Yeah. I wonder if it's charmed. I hope it is. If it's charmed, maybe we could just dispel know, it's charmed. We know, yeah, that, well, the, we know that they can be beaten down and things like that. That was part of their thing is that they're True. cowardly. Yeah. So, so he's probably charmed. He might be charmed or he might just be uh, yeah. intimidated. It, it said in the description that we got of them that they're easily intimidated and can be forced into servitude by things that are more powerful than them. <clears throat> yeah. The greatest threats pertaining towards Onuris being separated are if he if he goes down either unconscious or dead. Or um, stunned, right? Because uh, we had a discussion about this previously. Uh, stunned, uh, not as much. Okay, Someone cool. would have to steal the item from okay, him. Okay, good. Okay. What I was going to say is that if an individual is unconscious, they are automatically considered willing for all spells. Yeah. Which means that you can teleport with an unconscious person. Oh, no. Yeah. If he is um, dead, however, teleport re- only lets I'm you. I'm going to correct you. Oh, no. Because what? both of you stated this, and I thought to myself, this doesn't sound right. It's not a 50-pound limit. Oh. 50-pound is only for the teleportation ability of outsiders. Oh. That is set plus 50 pounds. Oh, okay. In the case of teleportation, it's up to your maximum load. Oh, oh, so no. as long as somebody can pull him up. Kobeck is a, a surprisingly muscular He's sorcerer. Luke Cage. <laughs> Luke Cage. You know what? That's um, what it was. So, I mean, He's so cute. Concerns. He's so good looking. That we're so, like, we trust so, him. That is a yeah. handsome man. He is a um, handsome man. <laughs> but here's where I will I will state this. If that had been Hollis's only dimension door, I would have considered that to be a serious tactical error. But since you have a second dimension door, it was a tactical decision. Splitting the party has benefits and downsides. The downside in Jessica's estimation for splitting the party is now on yours is a singular target. The advantage to splitting the party is 
you are not condensed into a single location. That's true. Which, when you're fighting against a spellcaster, is a horrible thing for all of you to be in one place. Now, if you were downstairs, you feasibly could have split into multiple rooms. While that room has five entrances to it, the room that you initially came in, if you had split into the two, like effectively, if you'd taken control of the front third of the house, the front three rooms, you would have limited yourself to three entrances. Yeah. We're getting a little bit into my years of playing XCOM. And I was going to say, controlling I'm, doors. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm literally um, sitting here going, this is basically XCOM. But, but right that now. would have also taken, that would have also taken you all out of fireball formation. Yep. Um, Which he can definitely cast. Well, yeah. potentially. Uh, I mean, he again, he, he kept saying, I believe my statement was, I have very few offensive spells. Uh-huh. Yep. And relatively speaking, he does. But if he can cast 20 different spells and only four of them are offensive, mm-hmm. that's then, very few offensive yeah. spells. Okay. But, well, I'm ready. Let's let's keep going and get out of here. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's kind of the die is cast. So now we just got to roll with it. Yep. I honestly thought you guys were just going to screw. I think Just I thought Jessica was just going to screw me over after I spent 10 minutes drawing out this map and be like, oh, we teleport back to the, the car. We're back in the wagon again. And we leave. Yeah. <laughs> and we ride away. And then I was like, oh, hey. well, to be fair, a really dramatic Camel chase would have ensued. Callback riding on the back of a sphinx, <laughs> blasting spells down to you. I would have loved storytelling the crap out of that. <laughs> it, it, it is one of those things, honestly, it's kind of weird because I'm not, I don't think any of us are usually the ones that are like a tactical retreat is in order. Like usually we have to be in very dire rare. straits. It's very rare for us to retreat. But like something about the setup of this just like hit me in my core that I was like, we have to get out of here. Like, all I don't of know. my bones yeah. were like, run. It I've never felt that. I, I, think the, I think the deciding point for all of you is going to be, and I'll just kind of end this on this, you don't know what those six cultists are capable of. Yeah. yeah, you don't know what level they are. Once you have an idea of their their individual ability, that may change the direction. Like if they're yeah. just there as hit points to soak up attacks. I'm gonna get really metagamey right here. Uh oh. Kavak, we know he has to be what we figured out an 11th level sorcerer to cast teleport, uh, or 10th level. level. Yeah. So he's a level higher than us, and then we have this Sphinx, which we know is the least powerful of the Sphinxes, but I don't know its challenge rating. And we have a Medusa, which is challenge rating Ugh, seven. Medusa. So for them not to have literally said, you're walking into a total TPK, these cultists cannot be that high of a level. But yeah. we should have dealt with the Medusa already, according to the book, and we should have, well, I put quotes around book for everyone. <laughs> uh, and we could have dealt with the Sphinx beforehand, and TPKs aren't unheard of. Yeah, TPKs can happen from falling off a bridge. Well, sure. sure. I'm just so, saying for the numbers to be crunchable in a way for us to be able to overcome these cha- this challenge, those cultists cannot be that high yeah. of a level. But sometimes everything can be perfectly fair and you just got to roll twice. No, I understand <laughs> oh, that, yeah, but I'm yeah. just saying... In the case of Medusa, you just have to roll once. I'm just yeah. saying <laughs> that these... It's not like these are ninth-level cultists. There's no... There's, oh, yeah, there, no. You know... Yeah. No, but sometimes you can... Like, you can have things that are a relatively low challenge rating, but they have, like, certain things that just knock you on your butt. No, that, like, but that's... I'm saying for the math to work... Yeah, but sometimes math is unfair and and, and very uh, merciless. Heather's <laughs> argument is that if this is still in a balanced encounter, yeah, from the design, then mathematically, yeah, from a design perspective, mathematically, this should not be higher than a challenge rating thirteen encounter. Shouldn't be, but <laughs> because that's the maximum that this party could be expected to do. Although, if you're fighting against something of that max, once you hit that maximum, like four levels above the party, it's a coin toss whether or not any member of the party survives. And we yeah. have yeah. used some resources. It, yeah, yeah. The, keeping in mind also, this is the only encounter we're probably going to have today. So it, <laughs> yeah. they can afford, in terms of the mathematics, if you have a lot of encounters happening in a single day, you tend to kind of space yeah. out the difficulty. They can crunch it all down and do this is the one fight yeah. where you need to go balls to the wall and go like just I, I think manage. I think Heather's argument is that this is not a death sentence because oh, sure, yeah. the no. math would not add up to this being a death sentence. But it's going to be hard. It's gonna be, it's gonna I'm be not saying fight. it's not going to be hard. Yeah. I'm just saying... It's it just be because doable. there's a lot of stuff on the map doesn't mean it's all challenge rating 12, yeah. you know? It's survivable, but hard. Yeah, it, it's more the setup. Like, when you walk into an ambush, they have an advantage over us in the Every situation. single fight and every single game we play, they have an advantage over us. Not necessarily. Except in Serpent Skull, because we uh, owned that game. Yeah, not yeah. necessarily. Ninety <laughs> percent of the time, we're walking into something that the enemy's known and uh, know and is an unknown to us. The the difference is that for half the party, Kabak knows exactly what we're capable of. Yeah. So but only half. Only half, thankfully, because Hollis and Sudi returned to stone during the Medusa thankfully, fight. I guess. But he basically <laughs> knows that Citra is a rogue, Onuris is a cleric. 
Everybody knows. Fortunately, Sudi took cleric. that extraordinarily complex tactical maneuver of petrifying himself <laughs> to hide his abilities from our potential ally. Anyway, I just I think this fight's going to be hard, but I don't think it's as dire as everybody else does. My body feels scared. Yeah, uh, right. seems to kick it I just I just keep thinking of every other time we've split the party and somebody lost an eye. Hey, but we didn't die. Gutted. We didn't. We haven't died we yet. Didn't, knock on wood, which is what I'm clinging to. Yeah, so we'll be fine. From there. We're going to move on to some emails. Emails. All right. So our first email is Carl from Fort Ramsgate, Malthoon, a.k.a. Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sweet. Nice. Hey, Carl. Hello. I hope you all are well. I'm emailing because I had a few questions and because I really wanted to let you know how awesome you guys are. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I found you guys a year or so ago, and you are by far the most interesting, cohesive, detailed, and rules-correct Pathfinder podcast I've listened to. Yay. Oh, wow. That's a high bar. Yeah, I was going to say, we try. <laughs> we try. We do try. The attention to detail makes everything that much more interesting and enjoyable, while the cohesion of the group makes y'all, aw, look at him using y'all, y'all great to listen to as a group. So thank you for all the laughs and edge-of-the-seat encounters. Looking at you, Crypt Thing. They they probably still use y'all in Indiana. I don't think so. I I think everybody uses y'all now. I think it's, it's kind of seeped out, though. Like, yeah. more and more people are using uh, y'all. Granted, anytime I go to Nebraska, they always look at me like I'm crazy when I use y'all. But as for questions, I have four. Number one, a softball. What's the music used when the party enters the Dark Depository in episode 85 of Mummy's Mask? It was really tone setting. Do you think you could start listing the music used in each episode, or is that a lot of extra work? That that might be a little bit extra work, but I, I might be able to do that. The funny thing is, I've gotten more comments on that music than any other Sirenscape that I've ever done in the history of the podcast. Usually people don't even notice Sirenscape in the background. <laughs> but no, that is the the Temple of the Moon sound set from... Curse of the Curse? Crimson Throne. Yeah, Curse of the Crimson Thrones. I think it's called Moon and Fang section of the... Uh, History of yeah. Ashes. Well, they don't list it by book. So uh, so I think it would be HOA Moon should probably pull it up if you're looking at the uh, the breakdown on there. But yeah, it's, it's the one that they use for the Temple of Moon, which is this uh, Temple of Desna that you go to. Oh, nice. So it has, it has a very kind of etheric, but also like hauntingly abandoned kind of feel to it. It nice. worked really well for it. All right, number two. How do you, Rick, prepare areas and encounters in such detail? I know you've touched on different things you do before, but I feel like this is a question to which you could give many different answers. The the big trick is to know how much your party is going to go through. Uh, a lot of that's just knowing your group. Since we're recording this for a podcast, usually I know that we're doing an episode, so the party is not going to get through more than two encounters. And now that we've gotten to mid-levels, it's usually one. So focus on the one encounter that you're dealing with. I like to use online resources. So I'll look up, I'll get on Archives of Deathless, I'll look up the, the monster, and then I'll open a se- separate tab for each one of its abilities. So if it has a petrification gaze and I need to have all the rules down for that, I'll just have one tab open for the petrification gaze, one tab open for the Medusa, maybe a separate tab open for its poison if it lists its poison separately, or any spells that it may use to just kind of quickly go through them. Other than that, it's just don't over prep. Know what your party's going to go through, know the next three encounters that they're probably going to do, and really just prepare for those. I've only glanced over, using Kovic for example, I only glanced over Kovic's offensive spells before you guys went out to go and confront Kovic. Because up until that point, I'm like, I don't really need to know what offensive spells that he has. All I really need to know is what his bluff check is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Rick actually has way better rules knowledge than I do. So to kind of jump on it for somebody who's not like full-time GM, take the time to also look up all of their feats and all of the, uh, you know, any kind of weird things they might have. Because a lot of times they have a feat that comes into play in certain situations and you want to know what those are. Yeah. So, like, if they have Awesome Blow, for instance, you know. Feats are actually probably the most commonly forgotten thing on a monster stat block. Yep. Is people just look down and they go, I could have been using Power Attack this whole time. Yeah. I'm always disappointed by the sheer number of enemies that don't take Furious Focus, though. Yeah, it's weird. They don't like to yeah. give them Furious Focus. Most monsters will usually have Toughness because extra hit points for monsters is just good and yeah. improved initiative because it's nice for the monster to at least get to go, especially <laughs> if, uh, if the party outnumbers it like five or six to one. It should at least get one round to do something cool before yeah, most, sheer most, math overwhelms it. Yeah, and the over-prepping thing is most fights are over in roughly three to five rounds at yeah. most, so you only really need to worry about what are they going to do for about three rounds yeah. worth of stuff. Highest little spells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. Number three. 
What is the best way to introduce new players to Pathfinder? I'll be starting a totally new group of five, and I'm not sure how to bring people with no experience with D&D into Pathfinder. I have the beginner's box, but what other advice do you have? Do we just want to roundtable this one? Like uh, I up? think, let's see, Rick's done new players, Jess has done new players, I've done new players. Do you, play? do you have an opinion, Heather? Uh, for brand new players, I would limit them to the core rulebook. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's, yes. that's let's good not one. be like, let's be a Tifling Slayer when they don't have, you know, because the Slayer is more is easier to understand if you've played a Ranger or played a Rogue before. Yep. And so, kind of piggyback off of that is that having one book versus ten books is nice. The, yeah. You know, if you show them your whole bookshelf full of Pathfinder books and I go, this is everything, they're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. Or worse, if you tell them to go to Archives of Nethys. It's just oh, it's yeah. so much. Yeah. So I, I would limit them to the core rulebook for yeah. their first foray yeah. as they get more comfortable. Like, you know, if you've been playing a few sessions and somebody dies and you feel like that player's pretty comfortable with the rules, maybe introduce like the advanced class guide or something. Yeah. But don't just, throw, like Rick said, don't be like, here's Archives of Nethys, have fun. Yeah. Because... <laughs> They'll feel so overwhelmed. Uh And then you may, if you've got five players, you may maybe do a couple, one or two of them at a time to make characters instead of trying to help five people simultaneously who have no idea how to play the game make a character. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the first time you make a character at level one will probably take around four hours per person because... It's a long time. It, well, it, you have to explain what everything it's is a lot of reading. while yeah. you do it. So I mean, I've, I've walked multiple people through it simultaneously, but in, in that case, it still takes four hours to walk covered through it. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I would do it in small groups instead of sitting down with all five of them at once yeah. to yeah. try to make yeah. characters Because as soon as people branch time. off into classes, it gets very mm-hmm. different. Let's see. I would make sure that the first thing you have them play is not going to be some, something as large and long as an adventure path. Mm-hmm. Like yep. a short module, mm-hmm. um, a society scenario, something short. Society's great for it. Mm-hmm. Because that first character they make is not going to be, generally not going to be great. Um, because they're going to not know the rules. Like, I didn't know how to flank, <laughs> but I played a rogue. Yeah. And you may miss something because you're helping four people or five people simultaneously. So doing something short, that's like one or two sessions. And then having them build a second character for the long thing, if they want to. Yeah. A, Let's them practice again making a character, and B lets them go into that second character for that longer campaign with a little bit more of an understanding of how the game works. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my one big piece of advice. For me, um, the most complicated thing in character creation when you're kind of first starting out is what feats to take. The feats is there's so many feats and like which one's good to take and which one's not. I remember when we were first learning how to play, Rick told us these are the feats you should probably take, just suggesting them. But I think that having suggestions of like, you know, hey, if you're a... Uh, wizard maybe you want to take toughness or combat casting or something like that. so I felt I felt like the feats is the one thing where you can get have some some input into their character building just to kind of ease them into it uh, the other thing is definitely go a little bit easier on the rules enforcement but have a repetition behind it because I think like for the first six months we were playing Rick would almost monotonously drone out the rule to us over Tackle and over opportunity. and over. Tackle Tackle yeah, and and after a while, you just get that in your head, right? And you and you yeah. internalize it. But it is a thing that like most people need the repetition yeah. to learn the rules. Do not expect them to read the book and suddenly understand all the rules <laughs> no. in one go. Nobody can do that. It's a five hundred page book. If you're in first edition, it's longer. If you're in second, yeah, exactly. Um, so I have two. Uh, the first is the strategy guide. For me, oh, that was yeah. a huge a great boon. Especially my first rogue I was playing, I was like, what? <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so that is a huge help. I would say from a... I've never actually run a game, but I know several GMs at this point. And I will say that whenever we first... I, I think we did a module. I don't, we didn't do a full AP when we first, first played. Steps. Rick taught us how important it is to um, have certain gear... And yeah. so, <laughs> like a dagger, like um, a dagger, or a cold weather outfit. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so I think, uh, like introducing your characters to, like, yeah, you need to think about these little details that come up. But then he provided a way for us to get those things, like even in the middle of a forest. Yeah, I, think I, made, I, think. I think I'll let you guys make some survival checks to skin some animals, to make cloaks. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think it was almost better to teach. 
via that rather than say, hey, you should buy a cold weather outfit because it really, I will never forget that. And now sometimes where I'm just like, do I need a hot weather outfit? I mean, what, do I, what clothes do I need? Where are we going? <laughs> yeah, and I think it helps. You get kind of obsessed with the with the clothing <laughs> thing of like, yeah. so where are we going exactly? What's the temperature like? Yeah. I need the weather report. <laughs> but little things like that is like teach your players via experience, not just spouting the information off at them. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair point. Rapid fire three things. First off, Jason Bowman wrote an adventure. It's called Crypt of the Everflame. Oh, it's so a good. phenomenal adventure for first time players. Uh, it introduces a lot of the mechanics really well. The second thing is this piggybacks a little bit off of what Jordan was saying. Don't worry about forcing them to learn all the mechanics immediately. Instead of saying, what actions are you taking? Just ask a player, what do you want to do? And if they say, I want to go up there and kill that orc, say, okay, well, you have a movement speed of 30 feet. He's 40 feet away. You can double move or you can charge. One gives you an attack with a minus two to your AC. The other one, you're not going to take a penalty to AC, but you move up to it. Just let them tell you what they want to do and then tell them how they can do it instead of the other way around. The third thing, the final thing is, and I, I express this with some reservation, and I haven't ever done this with players, but that's because, you know, I walked into this knowing that Jess and Jordan were interested in playing Pathfinder. I originally learned to play D&D with Heather um, and teaching Rachel along with Jess and Jordan that they were all interested in the game. If you have people that are still on the fence, for the first five sessions or so, feel free to fudge the dice. As a person who made his first AD&D character spent two hours making him and then he was killed in the first round of combat it was kind of disheartening and i came close to not continuing to play dungeons and dragons and i wouldn't be still playing today if that were the case find the Let path them, would not exist that's true oh that, that horrible alternate reality um <laughs> feel free to fudge for the first couple sessions say the first five sessions let them play their characters let them win let them enjoy the story and figure out that they enjoy or whether or not they enjoy the game. And then after that, just tell them, it's like, look, up until this point, we've been going with these lighter rules. Now the kids' gloves come off. No more training wheels. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll actually piggyback on that. Also, let your characters all do something cool yeah. in the first <laughs> session or two, because like those cool moments, that's the payoff that you get for the four hours you just spent making a character. So if they're like, want to do something kind of ridiculous, like let them do something kind of ridiculous. And the one thing also is like, let them make choices. And if the choices are wrong, cool, like just roll with it. Don't be so like, uh, I guess, tied to the story necessarily if they want to go in a different way. All right. He has one last question. How can I bring my NPCs to life better? I find it hard to get players to engage with NPCs. So is there any way I can make them more relatable or realistic? I usually try to describe them in full, even making the enemies have unique descriptions and use a unique voice. I'm not great at coming up with their motivations, though. I mean, it sounds like you're already on the right track. There is a fun random motivation chart in the Game Mastery Guide. It, it literally is just a, you. anytime they run into an NPC, you can roll this and say, this character's brother's in prison. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, well, I didn't need to know that necessarily about this fishmonger that they're asking questions to, but maybe that's an interesting motivation for him to try to do things. Other than that, kind of, this is something that I've been trying a little bit more recently. I've been thinking about characters that I see in television series or actors or so on and so forth and envisioning how they would portray a role whenever I play it. So anytime, anytime that I was playing Kaubeck, I was thinking about Kaubeck as played by the actor that plays Luke Cage. I wanted him to be that, like, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm big, I'm imposing, but really deep down, I'm kinda, I feel like a soft, cuddly guy. But underneath <laughs> that level, evil. he's also evil. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those are my, it, honestly, it sounds like you're, you're already on the right track and you may be overthinking it because it sounds like you're, you're doing a good job, especially if you're developing character backstory and all the rest of that. Actually, yeah, if you just Google random NPC motivations, there's tons of fun charts for just things like, just give them something weird. Also ask them, hey, is there a reason you're not really interacting with NPCs? Like, is there something I could do better? Or yeah. just talk to them. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good point also. Because it, it could be you're sharing too much and they don't want to spend the time to hear. Or they don't want to play that way. You know, long way. Yeah. Maybe that's just, yeah, I mean, some people are just not as big role players. Yeah, or especially if they're newer players, well, yeah. they, the role playing, sometimes the role playing aspect can make people uncomfortable yeah. for the that's first true. little oh, bit. Oh yeah, until you get used to it. You do feel silly. Because you feel kind of <laughs> silly or it's just like, well, I want my character to say this, but I don't know how I'd say it. So I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. Oh, actually, so, I, I did read an interesting article just on the, on the subject of that about ways to bring players out this is actually kind of the tipping it over from I feel silly to I maybe even look silly uh. is some people role play way better if they have props particularly facial obscuring props 
So if you have a player, they're new to playing, and they're like, well, I want to play a dwarf. And it's like, cool. By the way, here's a Santa beard. And yeah, you feel a little crazy putting it on, but after that, it's like, actually, I'm already kind of hidden. I'm already in like a little safety blanket of this fake beard. And now I'm in character because I'm wearing this beard. Also, or a fun hat. Just get <laughs> microphones and put a <laughs> pop filter. <laughs> and then you can't see anybody anyway. And, and then very occasionally free. you're trying to role play and Jess leans around her pop filter and makes crazy faces at you just to try to break the seriousness. Yeah, get a Jessica, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one, one last thing that I'll actually I'll throw out for that. Uh, we we are in podcasting. We, of course, are very much enjoy podcasting. We follow a lot of other podcasters and people that put out gaming-related media. Some of your concern pertaining towards your NPCs, some of your concern possibly pertaining towards players is what is uh, affectionately being referred to as the Mercer effect. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. So many people get into gaming because they see Critical Role where it's a bunch of professional voice actors playing these characters. Professional actors and voice actors don't expect to be Matt Mercer. I am yeah. not Matt Mercer. Just, I perfectly accept that. My accents are horrible. Just go, <laughs> just go listen to Tyrant's Grass and you'll hear some of the two worst <laughs> Irish accents you'll ever hear in your life. Yeah. Make you feel better, and that's you know true. what? We still have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have fun. That's the best rule. Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely have fun. Yeah. So, so all right. So yeah, thank you, girl. Right. He ends it with saying, "Anyway, thank you for letting me ramble. You guys are amazing, and thank you again for all of the fantastic entertainment you have provided. I really appreciate the work you all put into this network. I'm looking forward to all the excitement to come. Have a fantastic week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And also, you too, we're bud. a network now. <laughs> No, I mean, we do have more than one show. I guess that's true. Wow. Ventures Enterprise. I guess Ventures could be another way of saying Are network. We... I just never thought of it as that way. So, All right. Email number two is Drew from Louisville, Kentucky. Lou, Louis- Kentucky. Just Kentucky. says, hey, Rick. Uh, uh, mountains. Excuse you. Mountains. <laughs> Kentucky. Mountains. Chicken. Sugar. Five Sugar. Kings Mountains. Five Kings Mountains? Sure. The, sure. Su- the southern portion of the Five Kings Mountains bordering Enderin. Sure. Cool. We'll sure. That. There are a lot of patriotic people in Kentucky. Yep. All right. It says, hey, Rick. Uh, rude. Yeah, it's uh, so rude. Hey. Get. <laughs> All right, well, I guess I'm going to take my headphones off so you all <laughs> I'm currently catching up on the pod and I'm in the transition between books two and three. I read the books as the podcast progresses and was wondering about how you deal with what could potentially be balance issues with how the party acts. With their mentality to not take anything from the necropolis in book two, it seems as though the party is down many thousands of gold from where they should be had they looted all the various knickknacks to sell. Going into the Triumphant Return episode, I thought it may be a good idea to keep the balance by providing a lump sum of gold uh, from the city or as a gift from the pharaoh. You may have done something similar and I just haven't caught up yet. I'm excited soon to be caught up and then dig my teeth into your Tyrant's Grass campaign. Thanks for creating such wonderful content and congrats on the recent Paizo partnership. I would Thank like you. money. Uh, <laughs> we could always How use very more gold. Of you. <laughs> Actually, Drew, you're, you're 100% correct. We got money, didn't we? The party got a lump sum yep. that was based off of what they would averagely get from the rest of it with a little extra bonus thrown in for taking the uh, the hard track of not taking treasure from anywhere else. Uh, it's always good to keep your players on par or even slightly above what they should be for their average gold per level. Yes. Uh, so since they chose to take the more difficult route in doing all of that, I chose to give them a reward exceeding what they would have gotten if they'd taken everything and sold it. In general, I feel like we get rewarded more for doing like the good or the hard thing Being good. in you the get, long run. It's not necessarily even the good. You guys get rewarded more for doing the hard thing. Yeah. And that's that's what I want to keep yeah. doing because I I want you guys to take the difficult course. Yeah, if you've ever um, wondered why we just make our lives so hard, yeah. it's because we've been trained and manipulated into <laughs> knowing that that's the thing we should do. Video well, games it, do it's kind of this, actually, it's supported in Paizo as well, where you'll get, like, say, story XP yeah. for yeah. as if you had defeated an enemy in combat, if you can talk your way out of that's it true. with them. So, like, it, it is somewhat built into the mechanics, but also Rick definitely has trained us to know that if we do sacrifice something we'll probably get it back or and then some. like the fight at the auction house where Citra saved those people we got XP for that that we wouldn't have gotten if yep. we were like screw it those people are dead anyway yeah you know yeah. so yep, yep. Citra put herself at danger and put the rest of the party in a degree of danger because she couldn't go over there and help but the party got more XP and actually more treasure you're we welcome yeah. yep, yep. <laughs> so it's one of those try to do the right thing and you're usually rewarded for it so yeah, yeah. and as a GM kind of keep in mind that yeah there there are actually guides of how much gold everybody should kind of yeah. be getting per level and per encounter and if you are finding that you're trailing behind feel free to 
uh, create a you know mystery room that they find that's just full of gold. You know who knows? <laughs> no, or just yeah, just have an extra platinum bar or two on the next enemy they kill. Yeah, that's true. All right, we do have one more email. The questions are pretty quick, so I'll go ahead and read it. All right. Hey, doorkeepers and Hollis and Rick. This is Will from Diabell. Hey, Will. Same, is it my saying that right? Diabell's right. Diabell. Okay. It's a city on the western portion of the Isle of Cortos. Okay. I finally caught up to the current episode, and I've greatly enjoyed listening to your adventures. I've got a question, but first I want to get in the kudos. <laughs> Rick, if you want to, you know, take your headphones off for a second. Walk out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to other podcasts, and I want to say what I love about yours. It's not just the incredible rules knowledge that makes the Pathfinder system come to life in a way that I love seeing, or the way you guys are all such great friends in a way that clearly comes through the sh- on the show. Oh. It's that it feels like you guys have the perfect relationship both between players and GM and between the party. Rick does such a great job of challenging the party, but also working with them to tell a mutual story together. And both players and characters work together seamlessly, both mechanically and in role-playing situations. I've recommended this podcast to others, even if they aren't playing Pathfinder, just so they can get a good idea of how a GM and a group of players should interact. Aww, Aww thank you. Friendship is yeah. magic. Yeah. Yeah, magic is heresy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fills me with a sense of pride and embarrassment. Thank you. <laughs> He's blushing, y'all. <laughs> Can't see it behind my pop filter. <laughs> pop filters, that's the key. Pop yeah. filters. I've played Bummy's Mask from the beginning to the end. Spoilers, the real Sky Pharaoh's tomb was inside you all along. <laughs> there. That's why we're so evil sometimes. Uh, the real cause, the friends you made along the way. <laughs> I was initially worried that I wouldn't enjoy your podcast since I knew the story, but between Rick's interweaving of original elements into the plot and each player's incredibly fleshed out character backstories and relationship, it feels like I'm listening to something completely different. Well, thank you. Cool. My first question for Rick is how how do you decide what parts of the campaign can be edited or changed to add in your own elements versus what parts are too core to the main plot and thus need to be left alone? In essence, anything that is in the adventure description, kind of at the end of usually book one, that'll give you a description for all six of the adventures, those are the those are the beats that are too important to really change. But anything pertaining towards any of the characters, actually, let me let me simplify this. Events I keep core. But characters, I'm more than willing to change. So there was already a whole thing with Merit Hetef being from Sothis and having this whole thing, and her her and Serethet working together. Adding a third person to that mix doesn't necessarily change either of those characters, and if anything, it actually evolves it into this like three musketeers of archaeologists, oh. and then you know bringing Hollis in makes that more interesting. Uh, it's the same thing as involving Tetmanib in book one instead of waiting till book two to introduce him. That it's just, I'm moving pieces around, but there's always going to be the car pulse. There was always going to be the mask stolen. There was always going to be these major elements that are required to progress the story. So it's like Doctor Who. It's wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. You have certain events that cannot be changed, but everything else is up Flexible. for grabs. That works. Uh, I was thinking a little bit more Bioshock, but... There's always a man, there's always a lighthouse, there's always a city. Yeah, I think Doctor Who's reached more people. Yeah. Yeah, Well, if you haven't played Bioshock, play Bioshock. Go play it. It is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, All right. My second question is for Hollis. Me! Hey! Did you consider naming your animal companion Oats? Hollis Hollis and Oats. Oh, Hollis and Uh, Oats. (laughs) (laughs) No. That was a missed opportunity. That was a really big missed opportunity. (laughs) Well, I was just looking for something real dang southern. And I thought saying sugar a lot would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, she's white and feathery like sponge sugar. So that's where I was yeah. at. Okay, right. there you go. He ends it with good luck in Tefu. Oh, yeah, we need it. We need it. You'll yeah. find out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, we actually ran out of deities and we have requested some suggestions. We're still kind of sifting through the suggestions. So we thought is kind of a, a hold off that we would cast our characters to begin with. Because we Which, didn't do that Yeah, we've yet. done for Tyrant's Grass, but not for Mummy's Mask. Yeah. So I think we're going to go around and uh, cast our characters real quick for you guys today. And if you agree, awesome. If you have some other suggestions, though, we'd like to hear them. Feel free to post it on the Reddit. And uh, who wants to start us off today? I guess I'll go first. Um, go for so it, Sudi's lithe. He's acrobatic. He's a little bit short. I'm going to go with Tom Holland. So uh, I, I love Tom Holland and Spider-Man, and I think that he would do a fantastic job as Sudi Kantar for a suitor with a lot of CG. Either or. Just instead of Mr. Stark, it's Mr. Shepis. It's going real dark, Mr. Shepis. I don't want to die. I don't want to go. <laughs> That's so sad. Don't make me leave. That's no. so mean. All right, I'll go. Go ahead. All right, so for Hollis, 
I'm going to choose Elizabeth Debicki. She was in The Great Gatsby. And, uh, this is for Hollis, right? Yeah, because she's very, very tall. She's like 6'2". Oh, nice. She looks elfy. She could be an elf. And then for Sagira, it's that MMA fighter lady whose name I don't know. Ronda Rousey. Gina Carano. Tina Carano, yeah. Gina. Gina, Gina Carano. Gina Carano. We watch a lot of MMA. We don't, but she's no, don't. swole and Sagira's swole. She's pretty awesome. Yeah, she's great in The Mandalorian. She's, uh, I can't remember the name of her character in Deadpool. It was something ridiculous because all of them were. Yeah. I guess I'll go. So it'll be no one's surprise that I have two. <laughs> you pick one. You I know, pick but I can't. One. One. Okay. You pick a single one. You pick one. one. Okay, I'm at least going to say both. Because no, no, no. It would ruin my streak if I don't say you both. You pick, pick one. a single one. Fine. <laughs> I pick uh, Hannah Simone from The New Girl. Yeah, CC. Very nice, CC. So I was going back and forth between her and another character, and I just... I, then I came across this picture on Google where she's doing this like weird little smirk and her eyes are all big. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's Citra. <laughs> yeah, how tall is she? Uh... I don't I'm know. I'm kind of curious because I, I thought Citra was, what, 5'6 or something like that? What, how tall yeah, is Citra? Yeah, Citra's 5'6. Yeah. Let's see. Hannah Simone. Let's I mean, see. they don't have she's to fit seven. the height perfectly. 5'7? Perfect. She's 5'7. Hey, look at yeah. that. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, she's uh, pretty awesome. She's just kind of got a quirky look about her. I love her. Nice. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Shamar Moore from He's Morgan in Criminal Minds. Oh, yes. baby doll. Baby girl. <laughs> baby, girl. baby girl. But I have to say, Rami Malik. <laughs> I'd also From episode Rami. like one. <laughs> Remember episode one? <laughs> no, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go with Shamar Moore. That's a good one. I, I, yeah, I like yeah. it because all you really have to do for him is he's already got the shaved head thing going down. You just put some like gold like you know <laughs> body paint on him and he's ready to go. He'd like, be down for it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so. Those are our picks yeah. for yeah. our characters. I have Falto, but he's already Chris Evans. It, he, in my brain, he's Chris Evans. Who's the uh, voice of Unhurrant? <laughs> Jeffrey Rush. Ben King. Oh my ben gosh, that's perfect. That was not bad, but I was going to say Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. No, no. Jeffrey okay. Rush. Here's Jeffrey my Rush problem with Ben Kingsley is he just... I feel like Ben Kingsley just always sounds intelligent in everything he does. So. Unheard is a very smart bird. He's got a three intelligence. He's got a three intelligence. That's he's very smart for a bird. Yeah. Hey, he is no the sugar. Ben Kingsley of birds. <laughs> no, I would just Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush and Sugar is Judy Dench. Ah. Yeah, I thought we did we cast Judy Dench for something else? I don't know. I suggested her Judy Dench with a southern accent. Okay, okay, okay. Southern accent. Okay, um Oh, 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 gosh, what's her name? From Yaya Sisterhood. She plays the mom. Oh, yeah, her. God, what's her name? Hold on. I don't know her name. Uh, Reese Witherspoon could do it. There you go. No, she's she's an older woman. Jeffrey Rush is an older man. (laughs) And Sugar's 65. (laughs) She doesn't need to sound 65. She's a stately elder bird who's young forever because elf. Ellen Burstyn. Hmm. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn. She plays the the, the grown-up version of uh, Vivi Walker in the Yaya Sisterhood. That's what I know her from. But she's been in a lot of stuff. She's real good. I've never seen Okay, it works for me. All right. Good luck, Pathfolk. We'll see you next time. We're done. Good yeah. luck, Pathfolk. Don't get uh, separated and eaten by Sphinx. Find the Path Ventures is an officially licensed partner of Paizo Incorporated. Mommy's Mask is copyright 2014. Mommy's Mask and the Pathfinder Adventure Path are trademarks of Paizo. All Pathfinder images are property of Paizo and are used with permission.